Let's start today just by all collectively taking a deep breath together. Okay, will you join me? Breathe in. And out. And that just to say we made it. This is the last Sunday of 2018. And if that was a great year for you, or if that was a horrendous year for you, it doesn't matter because Tuesday we get to start over. Just kidding. But this is the time of year when a lot of us stop and we think about how we can make next year better than this year. It's when we do a little evaluation of what decisions we made and how we lived the last year. And then we set some goals. Some people even set some New Year's resolutions about what can I do to improve myself, to put myself in a position to be successful next year. How many people plan on setting a New Year's resolution this year? All right, some of you. You're proud of it. I like that. I podcast a pastor that says, if you're going to raise your hand, elbow to ear hole. Come on, let's go. And I'm like, that's my guy right there. Miles McPherson, the rock in San Diego. Only guy I've ever heard say that, but I like it. So I got a graphic here of the New Year's resolutions that were most common in 2018. Just in case you weren't planning on setting one, here's some inspiration. Number one was to eat healthier. Number two, get more exercise. Number three, save money. Other ones were read more, make a friend, learn a skill, get a job, right? I think throughout my life I've set pretty much all of these, some more successfully than others. I think five years ago I started the whole like exercise thing. My wife was doing half marathons and I was just keeping our daughter alive on the sideline, you know, like a dad should do. And eventually she said, you know, you could push her in the stroller. And I was like, don't say that out loud. But I did and... Uh, my New Year's resolution was I'm going to like lose that post-college weight. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to follow the training plans. I'm going to race. I'm not going to win, but I'm going to try, you know. And I did until I figured out that training sucks. So instead of racing to win, because I already paid the money, so I was like locked in, I raced to finish, you know. So I kept the time on like for a marathon, you have six and a half hours. For a half Iron Man, you have like, I don't know, seven and a half hours. So I was like, I just got to be better than that. So my goal is just to finish. For eating, instead of like getting skinnier, I decided to like maintain, don't gain. How many calories did I burn today running? That's one extra slice of pizza, you know. <laughs> so that, you know. And I found that all of these goals, which are now gone, have one thing in column. They're all like self-improvement based, right? What can I do to myself to make next year better? And I found that universally in my case, maybe not in yours, but in my case, anytime I set a goal to make myself better, it's not convicting enough to actually follow through on. It's like, do I want to lose weight? Not as much as I want to eat a hamburger, you know? Do I want to get healthier? Not as much as I want to sleep in. And all of my self-improvement goals usually ended before January did, you know? So one year I decided to do something different. One year I decided that instead of being self-focused, focused on self-improvement, I was going to focus on others, and I was going to pre-say yes to any time God gave me the opportunity to serve somebody. So I was just, God, whatever opportunity you give me to serve somebody, I'm in, I'm going to do it, I'm going to serve them. And I expected God to invite me to service in a manner similar to this. I got a short little video. On 9-11, people said, here's our opportunity to help. Even though we knew nobody by name, we did, they were all strangers when they came to Gander. Out of community came together. It, it was an amazing feat.
In the moments after the September 11th terrorist attacks, United States airspace was closed. Hundreds of inbound flights needed a safe place to land. One of those places was Gander, Newfoundland. Once you get halfway across the ocean, the closest airport is Gander. And at that day, they were told to land at the nearest airport. And 38 aircraft was nearer to Gander than they were any other airport. I get this call, get up in back of the airport. So I go up there and I'm just in awe. I watch this big jet come in and I look again and there's lights of another one. I go, oh God. The night the planes landed here, I was at the Legion and the first thing come out of my mouth was, thank God they're coming here because I know they're gonna be looked after. Not saying they wouldn't be looked after elsewhere but I knew they would be looked after here. Nearly 7,000 shaken and disoriented passengers arrived in Gander, almost doubling the population of the tiny Canadian town. A plan of action went into place just like that. And that's what the whole community became involved with. I don't know of anybody who, who didn't do something, be it you know something big or something small. Everybody seemed to have uh, done something because you knew it had to be done. All across Gander, people opened their doors to stranded passengers including over 700 at a local primary school. The teachers went home that day and emptied out their linen closet, took every blanket and pillow that was not on the bed, and they brought it back to the school. By the early morning, maybe five or six o'clock, we had had four flights arrive at Gander Academy. We kind of went on adrenaline. I know I didn't go home and sleep until 72 hours later. It just went on for days, and everything that we needed seemed to come, and I still don't know how that happened. This is one from a school teacher in Montclair, New Jersey. He sent me that on the first anniversary. People invited them into their homes, gave them keys to their cars, the keys to their home, and never blinked twice about it. The generosity of the people of Gander was a bright spot on one of the world's darkest days. When it was all over, I was never more prouder that the greatest strength we have is our people, and we have great people here in Gander. It shows you how up to date I am on current events. I just learned about this like a month ago. <laughs> so maybe you never heard about it. Maybe you knew that this happened. But somewhere in my brain, this is what I expected an invitation from God to service to look like. 38 planes and 7,000 people showing up at my doorstep. I expected a very clear call to action. Serve them, feed them, clothe them, make sure they stay alive till their plane can actually leave. I expected a time frame. You got five days and then it's done and I expected a clear outcome, right? They leave, everybody's safe, right? And I think that's what a lot of us expect when we think about service, right? If somebody's gonna invite me to serve some, something, hey, could you help me move? Sure, no problem, I have a truck. Um, I can help you move. Or can you help me build something, right? I have some tools, sure, I can help you build something. It's short, it's clear, there's a time frame, there's an outcome. I'm happy, I feel good about myself, You're right? Somebody else got something done for him and I can move on. And that's what I expected. But what God did over that year was he gave me a picture of a story in the Bible that uh, I think clarified my view of what service really looks like to God. And I think that's what I wanna talk about today is how can we view service in 2019 a little bit different and how can we apply that to our lives in a way that's meaningful. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Ruth, it's in the Old Testament. It's a small book after Judges. 
No shame in using the table of contents. It's only a couple pages long. It's easy to flip by. We're going to be in Ruth 1. Uh, but to give you a background on the book, it's really, oh, and we have ushers with Bibles. If, uh, if you need one lent to you, we'd be happy to, uh, to supply that. Uh, but Ruth is really a book that's a story about a family. It's a story about a woman named Naomi, who's married to a guy named Elimelech. And they're Israelites. They live in Judah. And at the time of the story, there's a famine in Judah, and there's no food. And they have two sons. I'm going to butcher them, Mylon and Kilion. And to keep the family alive, Elimelech, even though it breaks some Old Testament law, says we're going to move to Moab where there is food because we don't want to starve. So he moves to Moab, a country that doesn't worship God, that's, right, Gentiles, that's, you know, people that they shouldn't mix with. And he moves over there to keep his family alive, and they stay there for 10 years. Over those 10 years, both sons get married to local people, again, breaking Old Testament rules, but they're just trying to stay alive. And one son marries a girl named Ruth, and another one marries a girl named Orpah. And at the end of the 10 years, Elimelech dies, and both sons die. And Naomi is left as a widow with no sons, with two daughters, and no means to support them. Because at that time, women didn't quite have the standing that they have now. They couldn't get a job. They couldn't enter into business. If a woman's husband died and she didn't have sons, the only option to stay alive at the time was either starve, which you wouldn't stay alive, or sell yourself into slavery. Well, Naomi didn't like either of those options. Uh, but she heard that the famine was over in Israel, so she decided that she'd move back and she would seek help from her family. Hopefully one of them would take her in, would help her out, would give her what she needed to stay alive, but she didn't want uh, that life for her two stepdaughters. So she said, you stay in Moab, you re-get married, which is perfectly fine, have kids, have a normal life, you know, I love you, but I can't keep you kind of thing, can't take care of you. Well, Orpah said, okay, that sounds good. I'll stay here, I'll get remarried, have a normal life. And we're going to pick up the story with Ruth's response. So if you turn me to Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, it says this. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May your Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And now Ruth had some choices. She could stay back, live a normal life, get remarried, perfectly fine. Or she could serve Naomi. She could give up her home, she could give up her culture. She could give up even her God because gods were geographic. She grew up with a different God than the Israelites. She could give up everything with no guarantee of anything. She could be going to Israel to starve and die. She could be going to Israel and be forced to sell herself into slavery. She could be going to Israel and who knows what could happen. She had no guarantee of anything. But she chose to serve Naomi. And I like what Daniel Block says about Ruth's choice. He says this, and I think we've got a quote on the screen. With radical self-sacrifice, she abandons every base of security that any person, let alone a poor widow in that cultural context, would have clung to. Her native homeland, her own people, even her own gods. 
that phrase he uses, radical self-sacrifice, stands out to me. Is that the kind of service that I think about when I think of service? Am I radically self-sacrificing the way I serve others? Or is there always that what's-in-it-for-me moment, right? He asked me to move. Am I going to ask for pizza, right? But this is the picture that Naomi says. And the rest of the book of Ruth is God's, is the story of God honoring that radical self-sacrifice of Ruth. You see, Ruth did move back to Israel with Naomi. And back then, the Old Testament law said that Israelite farmers had to leave the gleanings on the field for the, the poor people so that they could eat. So as you harvest your crop, if you drop some or if you miss some, you're supposed to just leave it there so the poor people could come and, or the widows and they could pick it up and they could have some food to eat. So Ruth picked up the gleanings on a guy's field named Boaz. And Boaz had pity on her because he, was, he knew about Naomi and he kind of told his harvesters, hey, leave a little extra so that you know, they can have enough because she's kind of gleaning for two. And eventually through events, Ruth married Boaz and they had a kid named Obed. And this is where God really showed me kind of the picture of service. You see, Obed stands out in a different part of the Bible that we regularly skip. At least I regularly skip. If you turn with me to Matthew 1 verse 5. It's in the genealogies, the very beginning of Matthew. We're like, this person begat this person begat this person. Uh, go start at chapter 2. Right? But Matthew writes this. He says, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, is in the genealogy of Jesus. You see, Ruth's decision to radically self-sacrifice in serving Naomi led to a branch in the family tree of Jesus. Her choice directly affected the lineage of Jesus, our Savior. And she wouldn't have known that. She wouldn't have known anything when she entered into the picture of service. So instead of my picture of service that I started out with of short, clear, time-bound, clear outcome, move on and be happy with myself, God's picture of service is broader. It's when you see a need and the Holy Spirit prompts you, you say yes. And there's no guarantee of a time and there's no guarantee of an outcome because that's on God. And the story of how I got up here on stage to talk to you today is one of many small yeses that I said to God along the way. And it started in 2000 when I was in the back row, literally the back row, we stand in the back row every week, of a mega church here in town. We'd attend, we'd sit in the back row, we would listen, but not engage. We would leave informed, but not transformed. And in our context of our values, we were definitely renters and not owners. And one week, the pastor got up on stage and he says, look, we have 15,000 people. We can't put any more chairs in the room or the fire marshals are going to get us in trouble. If you're not going to serve, you need to stop coming so that somebody can take your seat that will. Because this week, we had to turn kids away from the kids' programs. And I was sitting there, well, I kind of like coming, so I should probably serve. And I was 18, 19, or 20, somewhere in there, I don't remember. And I didn't like little kids, so I was like, I'm not serving little kids because that's, you know... Hurting cats is for other people. So I decided that I'd serve in the middle school program because they're crazy. They're different every week. You can't make crazy more crazy. So I figured the chance of me wrecking anything was pretty small. So I signed up to have a middle school youth group. And I was the little leader and I 
listened to the teaching with the kids, and then we had a little small group, and then, you know, I gave them my phone number and my text so they could call me if they wanted to. And I had eight to ten guys, and we did that. And after a while, I got a call from one of the kids, and he says, hey, I can't come to youth group anymore. It's nothing personal, nothing you did. I just, my mom can't swing the ride anymore. Uh, and he, de- he didn't directly ask, but it was clear that he kind of wanted me to drive him. And I drive a truck at 12 miles a gallon. He was multiple miles out of the way. It was definitely inconvenient for me to wake up earlier because I was still in college and sleep was important to me, as it still is. But in a moment of uncommon kindness, I said yes for a reason I don't know why, and I decided that I would bring him to church. I said, if you come, then that means you're sitting through the adult service, and then we'll go to the middle school program together, and that'll be that. He's like, eh, that's fine. So I'd wake up earlier, drive to get him, pick him up, take him to church. We'd sit through the adult service together, then we'd go to the middle school program together. Sometimes I'm taking him to lunch if he really felt like going to lunch, and then I'd drive him home, and we'd go on with our days. Eventually, they moved the middle school program to Tuesdays, and he still wanted to go to church on Sundays. So he's like, why don't we volunteer together? Let's like, you know. And I'm like, oh, you can't volunteer unless they're little kids. So we volunteer in a first grade room. We, uh, that's where the Jenga sermon came from a couple months ago, <laughs> all right, where we wrecked a bunch of first graders, taught them Jenga. But we'd volunteer together. Then we'd go to Tuesday. We'd go to the middle school program, and we continued that. And after a year, at lunch one day, he shared with me, you know, I'm kind of struggling. I said, oh, I'm sorry, what, what's going on? He says, well, before we ever knew each other, my dad went to Iraq to weld armor plating on Humvees. I'm like, that's kind of sweet, I didn't know that. He's like, yeah, I guess welders make a ton of money in Iraq, and he liked the money, and he just never came back. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. But like, Iraq war lasted forever, so I was like, Did he just sign up for another tour or whatever? And he says, no, 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 he's an independent contractor. He just never came back. I'm like, oh, it's horrible. I'm sorry. He says, and he just stopped paying money back to my mom. So she had to get a second job, so we don't really see her anymore. I'm like, oh, buddy, that's horrible. He says, and my siblings are struggling with not having a dad, and they don't really know what's going on. And at that time, like, both of them came out as gay, and he didn't know what to do about that either. And I'm 18, 19, or 20. I don't know anything other than how to drive to his house in the church and, like, ask the questions that they give you on the sheet of paper, you know, like, what did you think about that guy's point? You know, you don't, you're not supposed to answer, so you don't need to think, you know? And that's all that I knew. So I didn't know what to do. The only role that I had in his life was to be a chauffeur, and I was kind of okay with that. Uh, but at this point, I was struck with, like, now I don't know. And I was like, well, I'm so sorry. I'm happy to talk. I'm always here to listen, but I probably can't solve anything, right? Um, And the conversation ended, and we didn't have another conversation of that nature for a whole other year. And after a year, we were at the Halloween Elder Heights 5K, the best 5K in the world, because everybody dresses up. I took my youth group there every year. We would stand at the corner with a sign, arrow, so the runners didn't get lost. The Halloween 5K was the best because we got the t-shirts like the runners, so people would think that we ran. But in reality, the race organizers just feed us donuts and apple cider. So we got to eat. And since everybody was dressed up, me and my youth group would just stand there and judge our own informal costume contest. Right? The best one of all the years, we did this for like 10 years, was uh, some guy who was on a skateboard dressed like Santa, and he had eight girls in, as reindeer pulling him with a rope for the whole three miles. And I was like, that 
that is how you do a 5K. <laughs> I've been jogging, hurting, the cramp and everything, and he is getting pulled on a skateboard. I'd probably have a chair with wheels, but he was a lot smarter than me. But when I picked him up from his house to go to this 5K, he, in passing, just, hey, you know, my dad was in town. I said, oh, my goodness, that's awesome. What are you going to do? Are you going to, like, what are you going to do with him? He says, nothing. I'm not going to see him. I'm like, why on earth would you not see him? He's in town. You haven't seen him in years. He's like, because I'd rather be here with you in the youth group. And it was a moment that after three years of knowing him, after having one awkward conversation, of being nothing more than maybe a steady presence in his life, God gave me the gift of showing me that all that I needed to do was to be that steady presence and that God would do all the work. That God was using my gas and my listening and my asking the questions on the sheet, right? That didn't really cost me anything and didn't require anything of me. But God was just using my constant presence to help this kid, to give him what he needed. And that's what service looks like. Ruth entered into it with no guarantee. I said yes to this kid with no guarantee of anything other than a little bit of extra gas bill every month, right? But God works in the yeses. You see, that may have been the start of my journey, back row of a church, barely paying attention, feeling like, wow, I'm watching a mega pastor. That's impressive. But saying yes to volunteering at a middle school youth group led to saying yes to a trip to Israel to go on a Bible study tour, which led to an invitation to teach in 2010 middle school and high school youth groups, which led to a yes to join staff of another church as a middle and high school pastor, which led to a yes to go to seminary, which led to a yes to go to Turkey on another teaching uh, study tour, which led to me meeting Brad Gray, which some of you know from Central, which led to an invitation to Torin, which led to me joining TLC. Awkwardly at a marriage council, a marriage thing, where I said, hey, I'm Ryan, I'm in seminary. Brad said I should get to know you. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then I showed up at the launch meeting, he's like, who are you again? I'm like, ah, not memorable, sorry. <laughs> That's sad, but true, it's all right. I'm over it. Gotta be better, not bitter, right? No, it's fine. I think it's funny. But, uh, but all those tiny yeses God uses to accomplish his goals. And some of those yeses, I don't know what the next yes is going to be. Like Torrance said, I finished my final class of seminary. I won't get the paper till April when I walk across and get my red hood. Right? That's what happens when you graduate. Get a hood with a master's degree. Well, I don't know what God's next step is. I don't know if three years of four hours of sleep, working a full-time job, having a less than five-year-old and going to school full-time in my home office will lead anywhere, and I don't know what God's going to do with it. But it's not my job to know what God's going to do with it. It's my job to say yes. But about a month ago, God reminded me that I haven't always said yes and that there are consequences for saying no. You see, on my Facebook feed, I'm kind of addicted to clicking every picture and every video that pops up there. Luckily, I only have about 300 friends, so it doesn't take too much time. But 
one picture came up that I couldn't help but click on. I hadn't seen it before, um, and we're going to show it for like two seconds. It is a little bit, uh, it's not like uh, vulgar or anything, but it could be a little disturbing, and I know since it's family service, if you want you know, to tell your kids to look away for the two seconds, that's probably understandable. But a little backstory: it was a picture taken during the 93 Sudan famine. It was on the cover of Time magazine. It actually won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, but this picture reminded me of something in my life, um, and God used it. So if you want to look away, this is probably the time. Uh, but I think Jordan's going to throw it up there for a couple seconds. Okay, we can take that down. And if you want to look again, it's gone. What it is is a picture of a vulture looking at a young girl who's trying to crawl to the UN food line. She's a mile away. And what got me was when I clicked on the picture and I read the little blurb, it said that the photojournalist stood there for 20 minutes. That he wasn't happy with the picture as he took it. He thought it'd be better if the vulture's wings were open. You see, the vulture was waiting for the girl to die because that's what vultures do. And the photojournalist said, this is a great picture. It summarizes the whole famine thing pretty nicely, which apparently society agreed because it became a famous picture. But he stood for 20 minutes and did nothing but take more pictures and wait for a vulture to open its wings. And when he was done and he gave up on the vulture, he shoot it away, he lit a cigarette, he said a quick little prayer for the girl and he walked away. He didn't even pick her up, take her to get food. He said, as a photojournalist, it's not really my job to enter into the conflict. It's my job to document the conflict. And when he got back, and he got all the awards, and he got all the press, and he got everything, this is the quote that summarized how he felt. He said, I'm haunted by the vivid memories of the killings, the corpses, the anger, and the pain. And three months after he took that photograph, he never took another photograph again. And that photograph touched me and spoke to me because I went to Africa on a missions trip. And I took three pictures that that picture reminded me of. And none of them are nearly of that nature, um, but I will show them. The first one here is of a little girl in one of those uh, sponsorship child camps inside of the Kibera slum in Nairobi, Kenya. It's a million people that live in a square mile. You're $30 to $40 a month, builds a church, a school, and a little medical place. And this was one of the kids that attended one of those. She had the outfit. She had all of her needs taken care of because somebody somewhere else was paying their $30 to $40 a month. But she looked so sad. And I blurred her face just to protect her identity and respect that. Uh, but I remember vividly the thought in my mind, this is the kind of picture people want to see in my photo book. Sad person in a slum. So I was not listening to the tour guide. I was looking around. I clicked the photo. I moved on. And I did nothing. The second picture I took, which we can throw up on the screen, is of this girl. And you can't see it because, again, I blurred the face. But this was in the Maasai Mara, which is the African plains. We were on safari. We were in a mud hut village. Um, a little community of people that lived on the plains that hunted lions with sticks. They were sweet people. 
But this little girl was sitting with her back against her house, and flies were like walking on her face. And I thought, I can't even stand an eyelash on my cheek or a hair on my tongue, and if a fly gets anywhere on me, even like the bottom of my foot, I like freak out. How could somebody be okay with a fly walking on their face? There's multiple. And again, I clearly remember the thought, this is the kind of picture somebody would want to see in my photo book. So I took it, and I moved on, and I did nothing. Now, what could I have really done, right? I could have walked up and shooed the fly away. I could have walked over and talked to him, maybe. Maybe they didn't speak English. Maybe they did. I don't know. Maybe I could have done nothing, but I could have tried, right? Sometimes God just asks us to try. The third picture I have is from that slum, and I didn't blur their faces because they're full of smiles. And the difference between the first picture and the second picture was we talked to these kids. We didn't know what to say. Amazingly, they spoke English. Amazingly, they only wanted to see a picture of themselves. So as we had cameras, we would take a picture, we'd flip it around, we'd say, look, that's you. And they don't get to see pictures of themselves very often. So they were ecstatic. That's what I look like. Oh my goodness, I've grown so much since the last person showed me a picture of myself. And after a half hour doing nothing but taking pictures that we were readily going to delete because they were all horrible, right? And showing them the picture, they take a picture of me doing this and this, you know, like how little kids do. Now I'm a ninja, I don't know. Their faces turn to that. Now we say no, there's consequences. Obviously the consequences to my no's weren't huge. But I've never regretted saying yes to God's prompting to serve somebody else. But many times I've regretted saying no. And this year I want to do two things. And if you flip with me to 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. The verse is on the screen as well. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. In 2019, I want to run the race of 2019 to win. I don't want to say no to any opportunity that God gives me. I want to say yes. And I want to do that by doing two things. I want to set a New Year's resolution for myself, and I want to set a word for the year. And I ask as an application that you guys think about joining me. The New Year's resolution that I want to set is this. I want to look at every inconvenient request, because lots of times requests that people make of us feel inconvenient. I want to look at every inconvenient request that people make of me, and I want to ask God if it's an invitation that he is giving me to serve somebody else. And if I feel the Holy Spirit prompt me and say, yes, it is, I want to say yes right now to all those future requests. I don't want to wait for that perfect 38 planes and 7,000 people to show up on my doorstep at a perfectly packaged offer of service. I want to be willing to enter into the opportunities to serve somebody that have no time frame, that have no guarantee of an outcome that makes me feel good about myself. I want to allow God to use me to serve people even if I don't understand how he's doing it. And my day job is that of a salesperson. I sell commercial air conditioners. It's glamorous, right? And in sales, they tell you the first thought that comes to anybody's mind when faced with a request is the acronym WIFM, right? W-I-I-F-M, what's in it for me? 
And I think that's true. I gave the example. I have a truck. People ask me to move things all the time for them. And I'm like, you're going to buy me lunch? I don't usually ask. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, this better come with lunch. That's ridiculous. Right? I just moved this summer. Other people moved this summer that I helped. It's like, you're going to buy me lunch? Right? We have a food culture. At least I do. If it doesn't come to lunch, I'm not really involved. But instead of with them, instead of what's in it for me coming to my mind every time a request comes to me, my word of the year is going to be this. Wigimi, W-I-G-I-M-I. And you laugh because you probably never heard of this word. That's because I made it up two days ago on my desk. But every time a request is made of me, I want this to come to mind. And it stands for this. What is God inviting me into? How is God inviting me into the kingdom work that he's doing right now? And how can I play a part? Is this inconvenient request just one more way that God is inviting me to join him in the work he's already doing? And if the Holy Spirit prompts me, I want to say yes. So I want you all to imagine with me. Imagine what 300 or so of us that go to TLC what God could do through all of us if we all committed to asking ourselves, Wigimi, every time somebody made an inconvenient request of us. If we all asked ourselves, what is God inviting me into when somebody makes an inconvenient request? And I want to stand here or sit there at the end of 2019 and I want to hear all the ways that God has worked through you, built relationships transformed you and me through the service that we've entered into. I want to run 2019 like a race to win. Not just to finish. Anybody can finish. I've proven that through lots of half Ironmans and marathons. I want to run 2019 as a race to win. And I ask you guys to join me. Will you pray? God, we thank you for 2018. We thank you for all the good things you've gifted us with. And we thank you for all the tough things that you've used to challenge us and to grow us into the people we are today. I pray that in 2019 you give us the radical self-sacrifice that you gave Ruth. I pray that you help us to run 2019 like a race to win. I pray that you help us to look at every inconvenient request as a potential invitation to join you and your kingdom. Soften our hearts. Help us to say yes to you now. We love you, and we can't wait to see what you're going to do in 2019 through TLC. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.